Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallett. Our brain doesn't have the equivalent of a clock for telling the time directly, so it can't directly put timestamps on memories of events. But researchers have been trying to figure out a mathematical model of our brain's way of time processing. How do we neurologically represent the past? It all began about a decade ago at Syracuse University with a set of equations scrawled on a blackboard. Cognitive neuroscientist Mark Howard, who's now at Boston University, and then postdoctoral student Kartik Shankar, wanted to figure out a mathematical model of time processing. It's a neurologically computable function for representing the past, like a mental canvas onto which the brain could paint memories and perceptions. In effect, they were trying to work out a theory about how the brain puts the paint on that canvas. It's fairly straightforward to represent a tableau of visual information as functions of certain variables. Think of how we represent light intensity or brightness as wavelength. That's because dedicated receptors in our eyes directly measure those qualities in what we see. But the brain doesn't have such receptors for time. Masamiche Hayashi is a cognitive neuroscientist at the Center for Information and Neural Networks, a neuroscience technology research institute in Osaka, Japan. The problem is that time is such an elusive property of our perception, while color or shapes are quite obvious. There's a long history of studies on shape perception or color perception or something. But time is such an uh, elusive property. To encode time, the brain has to do something less direct. Pinpointing what that looked like at the level of neurons became Howard and Shankar's goal. Howard says their only hunch going into the project was a sense that there should be only a small number of simple rules. They came up with equations to describe how the brain might encode time indirectly. In their theory... Sensory neurons fire in response to an unfolding event. The brain then maps the temporal component of that activity to some intermediate representation of the experience. This is a Laplace transform in mathematical terms. That representation allows the brain to preserve information about the event as a function of some variable it can encode, rather than as a function of time, which it can't encode. The brain can then map the intermediate representation back into other activity for a temporal experience. This is known as an inverse Laplace transform. This allows it to reconstruct a compressed record of what happened when. A few months after Howard and Shankar started to flesh out their theory, other scientists independently uncovered neurons, dubbed time cells. Howard says they were as close as they could get to having an explicit record of the past. These cells were each tuned to certain points in a span of time, with some firing, let's say, one second after a stimulus, and others after five seconds. This essentially bridges time gaps between experiences. Scientists could look at the cell's activity and determine when a stimulus had been presented, based on which cells had fired. This was the inverse Laplace transform part of the researcher's framework, the approximation of the function of past time. Howard says once they discovered that, he knew the brain was going to cooperate. 
With this empirical support for their theory, Howard and his colleagues have been working on a broader framework. They hope to use it to unify the brain's wildly different types of memory and more. If their equations are implemented by neurons, they could be used to describe not just the encoding of time, but also a slew of other properties, even thought itself. But that's a big if. Since the discovery of time cells in 2008, the researchers have seen detailed confirming evidence of only half of the mathematics involved. The other half, the intermediate representation of time, remained entirely theoretical. That was until last year, and some groundbreaking work by Albert Tsao, who's now a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University. In 2007, a couple of years before Howard and Shankar started tossing around ideas for their framework, Tsao was an undergraduate student doing an internship at the Kavli Institute for Systems Neuroscience in Norway. He spent the summer in the lab of May Britt Moser and Edvard Moser. They'd recently discovered grid cells, the neurons responsible for spatial navigation, in a brain area called the medial interrhinal cortex. I wanted to look at what the lateral interrhinal cortex does. That's the sister structure of the medial interrhinal cortex that the Mosers had studied. Both regions provide major input to the hippocampus, which generates our episodic memories of experiences from a particular time and place. Tao thought if the medial interrhinal cortex was responsible for representing place, then maybe the lateral interrhinal cortex held a signal of time. The kind of memory-linked time Tsao wanted to think about is deeply rooted in psychology. Here's cognitive neuroscientist Masamiche Hayashi. Our perception of time is not the same as physical time. Time means that it's like a clock or like a stopwatch. You can actually measure how time passes and in a very precise manner. But in human perception, the perception of time is not identical as the physical clock. Hayashi says our perception of time is often influenced by physical factors. When we were in school and would watch the clock as it approached the end of a boring class, time would drag on. When you're having fun, you feel like time flies. So that means that our perception of time is really subjective. For us, time is a sequence of events, a measure of gradually changing content. That explains why we remember recent events better than ones from long ago, and why when a certain memory comes to mind, we tend to recall events that happened around the same time. But how did that add up to an ordered temporal history, and what neural mechanism enabled it? Tsao didn't find anything at first. Even pinning down how to approach the problem was tricky. Technically, everything has some temporal quality to it. He examined the neural activity in the lateral interrhinal cortex of rats as they foraged for food in an enclosure, but he couldn't make heads or tails of what the data showed. There seemed to be no distinctive time signal. Tsao tabled the work, returned to school, and for years left the data alone. Later, as a graduate student in the Moser lab, he decided to revisit it. Until at some point I just tried a data visualization method to visualize lateral entrinal activity at a population level rather than looking at single cells. And that revealed the time dynamic. 
Tsao worked with the Mosers and their colleagues to set up experiments to test the connection further. The first main experiment was to just have the rat run around in a box that was one meter by one meter. And the wall colors of the box were either black or white, and then we changed the wall colors according to a specific pattern. The researchers recorded neural activity from the lateral entorhinal cortex and nearby brain regions. After a few minutes, they took the rat out of the box and allowed it to rest. They then put it back in. They did this 12 times over about an hour and a half, alternating the colors of the walls between the trials. What looked like time-related neural behavior arose mainly in the lateral entorhinal cortex. The firing rates of those neurons abruptly spiked when the rat entered the box. As the seconds and then minutes passed, the activity of the neurons decreased at varying rates. That activity ramped up again at the start of the next trial when the rat re-entered the box. Meanwhile, in some cells, activity declined not only during each trial, but throughout the entire experiment. In other cells, it increased throughout. Based on the combination of these patterns, the researchers, and presumably the rats, could tell the different trials apart and arrange them in order. They traced the signals back to certain sessions in the box as if they were timestamps. Hundreds of neurons seemed to be working together to keep track of both the order of the trials and the length of each one. The rats seemed to be using these events, or changes in context, to get a sense of how much time had gone by. The researchers suspected that the signal might look very different when the experiences weren't so clearly divided into separate episodes. So Tsao says they made rats run around a figure eight track in a series of trials. And then the animal has to basically do figure eight loops, and it has to continuously alternate between going on the left side of the maze and the right side of the maze. During this repetitive task, the lateral entorhinal cortex's time signals overlapped, likely indicating that the rats couldn't distinguish one trial from another. They blended together in time. But the neurons did seem to be tracking the passage of time within single laps, where enough change occurred from one moment to the next. Tsao and his colleagues were excited. They thought they might have begun to tease out a mechanism behind subjective time in the brain, one that allowed memories to be distinctly tagged. They presented their work at a conference in 2017 and then published it in Nature last year. One researcher not associated with the study says it shows how our perception of time is elastic, that we're processing things that happen in sequences, and what happens in those sequences helps us estimate how much subjective time has passed. The researchers now want to learn just how that happens. Mark Howard's mathematics could help with that. When he heard about Sao's results, he was ecstatic. The different rates of decay Tsao had observed in the neural activity were exactly what his theory had predicted should happen in the brain's intermediate representation of experience. Howard says it looked like a Laplace transform of time. This was the piece of his and Shankar's model that had been missing from empirical studies. He was excited to see it actually did exist in data from someone else's lab. If Howard's model is true, then it tells us how we create and maintain a timeline of the past. He describes that as a trailing comet's tail that extends behind us as we go about our lives, getting blurrier and more compressed as it recedes into the past. 
that timeline could be of use not just to episodic memory in the hippocampus, but to working memory in the prefrontal cortex and conditioning responses in the striatum. Howard says these can be understood as different operations working on the same form of temporal history. Even though the neural mechanisms that allow us to remember an event, like our first day of school, are different than those that allow us to remember a fact, like a phone number, or a skill, like how to ride a bike, they both might rely on this common foundation. The discovery of time cells in those brain regions seems to support the idea. Howard says once you go looking for them, you start to see them everywhere. In a recent study, Howard, Elizabeth Buffalo at the University of Washington, and other collaborators looked at monkeys. They found that monkeys viewing a series of images show the same kind of temporal activity in their entorhinal cortex that Sow observed in rats. Howard suspects that record serves not just memory, but cognition as a whole. He suggests that the same mathematics can help us understand our sense of the future, too. It becomes a matter of translating the functions involved. And that might very well help us make sense of timekeeping as it's involved in the prediction of events to come. That's something itself that's based on knowledge obtained from past experiences. Howard thinks the same equations that the brain might use to represent time could also be applied to other things like space, our sense of numbers, and decision-making based on collected evidence. Really, they could apply to any variable that can be put into the language of these equations. Howard says it's like building a neural currency for thinking. Howard and his colleagues have been working to extend the theory to other domains of cognition. One day, those cognitive models could lead to a new kind of artificial intelligence that's fundamentally different from today's deep learning methods. In January of this year, scientists built a novel neural network model of time perception, which was based solely on measuring and reacting to changes in a visual scene. Warwick Rosenboom was one of the authors of that study. So despite the fact that time feels like it really drags or whatever, where nothing much is happening, you can still estimate time, right? So the idea that your estimation of time normalizes around what's been happening recently was something we wanted to capture. But their approach focused on the sensory input part of the picture, meaning what was happening on the surface and not deep down in the memory-related brain regions that Sow and Howard study. Before any application to AI is possible, scientists need to work out how the brain itself is achieving this. Sow says there's still a lot to figure out including what drives the lateral entorhinal cortex to do what it's doing and what specifically allows memories to get tagged. But Howard's theories offer tangible predictions that could help researchers carve out new paths toward answers. Of course, Howard's model of how the brain represents time isn't the only idea out there. Some researchers think there may be chains of neurons linked by synapses that fire sequentially, or it could turn out that a different kind of transform, not the Laplace transform, is at play. Or, as Howard says, this could all still be wrong, but it's exciting to work on it. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sapelowicz's full article, How the Brain Creates a Timeline of the Past, on our website, quantamagazine.org. The holidays are just around the corner. Need a gift for a science fan? Check out the Quanta book, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire, published by the MIT Press. 
Available now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore.